If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Habakkuk? The book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is another one of the books that I told you a few weeks ago. It starts off calling it an oracle, that an oracle is a burden. So I think that's a way that we understand it perhaps a little bit more. That what we're hearing when we read Habakkuk is a burden that is upon the prophet. A burden that's been placed there by God himself. So Habakkuk, we'll just read verses 1, 1 through 11. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The oracle or the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I pray for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounds, surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations, the Lord says, and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence and all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose own, God, whose own might is their God. Let's pray to the Lord together. Father, this morning I am reminded as we sing out these declarations to you of your greatness, of your glory, of of your transcendence, that you don't need me. And so today, my brain may feel foggy. But today, I may feel weak. Today, I may feel scattered. But none of that is relevant. What is relevant is that we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. What is relevant is that we believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God. What is relevant is that we believe that you, when you bring your people together, are pleased to dwell in our midst and to speak to us through your word and to call us to repentance and to renew our spirits and to rejuvenate our faith. And so I pray, Father, that would be our experience today. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and you would work in our minds and you would work in our lives, that all of us would endure and acknowledge that our lives are entrusted into the hands of the great I Am. We ask these things now in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So a few weeks ago, Gracie Kate, my 10-year-old, she comes and I'm, I'm watching uh, a show. You know, it's one of those at the end of the long day and you're just kind of going to a, a nothing place for a second, right? Well, Gracie Kate, after dinner, she comes and she plops down beside me on the couch and she says, Dad, I have a question. Now... If you knew Gracie Kate, you would know she is a woman of many questions, okay? <laughs> she is a woman of many questions. And so she sits down on the couch beside me and she says this. She says, Dad, I know that the Jews only believe in the Old Testament. 
And I know that the Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Savior. But Jesus was a Jew, and Jesus did believe the Old Testament. And now we believe the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that Jesus is the Savior. She says, I just don't understand all that. Can you help me? Now, I don't know about y'all. When I was 10 years old, I was worried about winning the Super Bowl. Okay? I was preparing for a life in the NFL Hall of Fame. I was not contemplating the distinction between ethnic and true Israel. There's something about when our children ask us questions that are of our faith that we love, isn't there? And we love that our, our questions, our, our kids ask us these questions. Why? Because it, it shows us that they're thinking seriously about their faith, doesn't it? It shows us that they're processing and they're, they're wanting to go deeper into a different level. They're, they're taking a measure of ownership of their relationship with Jesus and who God is and who God has revealed himself to be. And so we love that because serious questions reveal a serious faith. So it's interesting that when we have questions that they scare us so badly. When we have questions about our faith and when we have questions about the scriptures and when we have questions about the nature of God and the role of God, that those questions often terrify us. Now, granted, as we age, our questions become more mysterious. They become more complex, don't they? And, and perhaps even more so, they become more personal and they become more painful. That it's one thing to theorize about God. It's one thing to theorize about some theological point. But it's another thing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and to experience suffering in the face of God and to try to reconcile that with the character of God. And so our questions very often are serious, but they frighten us. But brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. That serious questions, regardless of your age, are always indicative of a serious faith. If you find a person that never has serious questions about their faith, then that's a person that never thinks deeply upon it. Habakkuk is a man with serious questions. He's uh, unique among the prophets. Most of the prophets, as as you'll remember over the last few weeks if you've been with us, they are the people that they go to the people of God and they speak to God's people on behalf of God, right? Habakkuk is unique. Habakkuk doesn't go to the people of God with a message from God to say, thus saith the Lord. Habakkuk is the person that goes to God on behalf of the people. That he makes some observations of what's taking place in Judah. And he says that he must take these questions, these complaints. He actually uses the word, the, the word complaint is actually used before God, that God might give him some answers. And so we see in Habakkuk, I think, some of the serious questions of faith that we have. And it's helpful because seeing the serious questions that Habakkuk has, we see the response to Habakkuk that God has. The first question that I want us to see that Habakkuk has is why won't God stop evil? That's a big one to start off the morning with, wasn't it? I hope you had your coffee. Why won't God stop evil? So Habakkuk looks across Judah and what he sees is something that is very similar to what we see in our land. In our land. I can't think of anything that is more grotesque or any sin that is more egregious or heinous than a pastor. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, I think, something along these lines when we were ordaining Daniel into the ministry. Then a pastor who takes his pastoral privilege and his pastoral access and his pastoral authority and uses that as a means to prey upon the people of God. And yet our headlines are filled with such, aren't they? 
Our headlines are filled with men who, who are sexual abusers or who are domineering leaders or who are, who are men who live with unaccountable authority, men who prey upon from their pastoral authority and their pastoral access to use that to in some way advance their own agenda or to satisfy their own desires. And what we've learned in recent days is that that problem is much more pervasive. Perhaps before we always knew that there, like any industry, if, if you let me use that term, there are good police and there are some bad eggs, right? And we always knew that there are, are good pastors and there are some bad eggs. But what we've come to realize is that the problem is far more widespread than we could ever imagine. With every Houston Chronicles article that is posted, most of us are left with our, our mouth agape. And so we say, like Habakkuk says, how long, O Lord? How long? How long will you allow this to carry on? How, how long will you allow this evil to, to continue in your presence? God, why won't you intervene? God, why won't you stop it? This is the essence of the message of Habakkuk. That what Habakkuk recognizes in the land of Judah is that they have a problem and the problem is pervasive. He says in there, if you'll look down, uh, he says that, well, I actually have the wrong passage there. I, I apologize for that. But if you'll look at your, your uh, Bibles in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, what you'll recognize there. I have chapters 2 there. That's, that's great. I should, have, I should have checked that better. But if you'll look in your Bibles and look at chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, what you'll recognize is you'll see that, that Habakkuk says that justice is not going forth. The law is paralyzed. And what he, want, what he means to, what he intends to point out is that from the civic and religious leaders all the way down, sin has become pervasive along the land. That, that even those who should be providing spiritual leadership, even among those who should be providing safety for the people of God, those that are meant to be providing safety, those places that are supposed to be safe places have in fact become places of tragedy. Places of unsafety, places of harm. And so here is Habakkuk, and he, he says, he opens up in verse 2, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear me? Can you relate to that? Can you relate to that? So God begins to respond to Habakkuk, and he responds in perhaps ways that Habakkuk was not prepared. He first of all says, Why? He works in ways that we can't see. I work in ways you can't begin to understand. So Habakkuk, I think it's important to recognize here that God doesn't seem offended by Habakkuk's questions, does he? God doesn't rebuke Habakkuk and say, Habakkuk, how dare you have such questions for me? Habakkuk, how dare you come to my throne room with such an audacious question as the one that you have there? He doesn't do that. He responds to him. He responds to him. As a matter of fact, we have three chapters here of this back and forth between Habakkuk and the Lord. The Lord doesn't seem offended at all that when we have serious questions of our faith, what we ought to do is to take those serious questions in earnest faith, in the face of God, and present them to him. Because God is not taken back by our question. God is not offended by them. God is not unknowing of them. And so you'll notice there... If you look in verse 3, that Habakkuk emphasizes the eyes. He says in verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Just imagine me circling the word see here on the screen. 
<laughs> you just roll with it, baby. You just roll with it. Why do you make me see iniquity? And here's another word we would have circled. And why do you idly look at wrong? Do you see what Habakkuk's saying there? Habakkuk is saying, God, do you not see what I see? Do you not see the evil that I see? Do you not see the evil among your people? Do you not see the brokenness that's in your land? Do you not see the corruption of the pastorate? Do you not see the corruption of the government? Do you not see the wickedness that's among your people? Do you not see the justifications of their sin? Do you not see? How long, Lord? How long will you continue to go? How can you just sit there seeing what I see and sit idly by? That sounds too close to home for comfort, doesn't it? And so as he goes on and he begins to uh, talk about what he sees, I want you to notice now in verse 5, what we get there is the Lord's response to the complaint of Habakkuk, to the question of Habakkuk. Look what's the first word that he says there. Look. Look among the nations and what? See. Wonder and be astounded. What is the Lord doing? He's flipping Habakkuk's question on its head. He's saying, you think you see? You think you see what's happening in Judah? You think you see and understand what's happening in the land? You think you see and happen what's ha- and understand what's happening in the temple and what's happening in the government? You think you see and that I don't see? Look, look, I'm going to show you a bigger picture. Look, there is more in play than you can even begin to comprehend. Look, you think you see, but you don't see at all. See, we're prone to believe that when God responds differently than we would respond, that he isn't responding at all. That when God responds in a different way and in a different time and in a, in a different measure than the way that we would respond, that God must not be responding at all. And so we throw up our hands at the suffering that we endure and we throw up our hands at the evil that we witness and we throw up our hands in the times that we've been sinned against and we think, Lord, how can you see what I see and just stand idly by? But just as God responds to Habakkuk, he would respond to us. No, 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 you need to look. You need to look. That my ways are far too great for you to begin to behold. That my ways are are too mysterious for your mind to comprehend. That, That my ways are wiser than your foolish heart can begin to appreciate. That what he's sitting there and he's reminding us of is that we only have half the story, man. In fact, we can look at the cross and see that, can't we? We look at the cross and what do we see? We see the abuse of God's son. We see the sentencing of God's son. We see the assassination of God's son. And it appears all of the people gathered around the cross are saying, well, where is God? Is he just going to sit idly by and let his son be crucified? And yet it's through the very means, the means which his disciples did not appreciate, the means in which his people did not recognize that God was most at work. It seemed as though God was silent on Friday. And it seemed as though God was silent on Saturday. But then Sunday showed that we didn't have the full picture. Oh, brothers and sisters, our lives are the same. And so the question that God poses back to Habakkuk is, will you trust me when I work in ways you can't see? Will you trust me? Will you trust me when I see, when, will you trust that I see further than you are able to see? 
But he doesn't just say he works in ways that we, he can't see. He works in ways that we don't like. Oh, this is important. This is important. We are all petulant children in the end, aren't we, in the face of God? Some, what is Habakkuk really praying for here? Habakkuk wants revival. He's wanting revival. He's praying, God, won't you turn the hearts of your people back? God, God, won't you turn the hearts of your people back to, to you? God, won't you turn the hearts of your people away from sin and, and toward their confidence and their faith in you? God, won't you turn it away from the world and turn it away from their spiritual apathy and their spiritual indifference? Won't you shift their hearts so they will leave behind all of the sin and all of this injustice so that now the law won't appear paralyzed, so that justice will in fact go forth? Won't you turn their hearts? But you see, all of us prefer... All of us prefer revival to reckoning, don't we? But sometimes, sometimes in the providence of God, sometimes according to the mercy of God, sometimes according to the wisdom of God, discipline has a greater long-term effect than a short-term revival might. That we see each generation in and of itself. We see our lives in the course of our lifespan. And that's as far down the road as we tend to get. But God, God sees 10 generations from now and 50 generations from now and 100 generations from now. And sometimes rather than sparking a momentary instantaneous revival within a single generation, it is to discipline that generation as an example for all of the other generations to witness. So he's going to let Babylon off the leash. He's going to allow Babylon to come in and to decimate his people. He's going to allow them who have, who have horses that are faster than leopards. Him who drags the nets over the course of the, of the cities to completely decimate them and to collect them up as though they are some catch. To come in so that all of their children will be born in a foreign land. So that all of their children will be raised up outside of the promised land. The entireties of their lives. And the entireties of their lives. They'll hear the story. And they'll recognize how seriously God deals with sin. And how seriously God takes the relationship and the covenant that he has made with his people. That Habakkuk doesn't like it. And we don't like it. But very often God works in ways that are better than the way that we would have chosen. You see, often, it's not that we can't see it, it's that we won't see it. Often, it's not that we can't see it, and we can't know what God is up to, at least in some measure. It's not that we can't recognize that, that God is doing something in a church, or doing something in a family, or God is doing something in a nation. It's that we don't like what we see, and so we refuse to recognize or acknowledge it. Oh, but brothers and sisters... That is a prime opportunity of faith. You see, how you respond to God's will when you don't like his will reveals who or what you actually believe and trust. How you respond when you don't like God's will. And every single one of us will encounter times in our lives in which we do not like the plan of God. And we do not like the will of God. And we do not like what he's bringing about in our lives or in our church or in our family or in our nation. But it's in those moments. See, it's when we don't like God's will that we have a great opportunity to either exercise faith or a great temptation to abandon or forsake him altogether. And so God is responding to Habakkuk in the same way that I think he would respond to us. And he's saying, what about you? Will you trust me 
when you don't like my plan? Will you trust me when you don't like my will? Will you trust me when you experience my discipline in your life? Will you trust me or will you forsake me? Well, this brings on another question for Habakkuk. As is often the case for each of us, I find Habakkuk to be a very relatable character in the scriptures for me. Habakkuk starts off and he says, why God won't you stop evil? And then he, having heard the response of God, he asks again, he follows up with, well, why won't you just say yes to me? God, why won't you just answer my prayer the way that I'm praying it? Why won't you just listen to what I'm saying and, and turn your heart a different way and, and change your plan to fit in alignment with my plan? I, I said that I think Habakkuk is a relatable character because I see my prayer life in Habakkuk's life. Habakkuk goes and he says, God, will you please just deal with the sin in Judah? God says, oh, I'm going to deal with it. He says, no, 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 not like that. Not like that. That's the summary of my prayer life, right? God, won't you please? Oh, Lord, please don't do that. Let, let, let me give you a plan B, Lord, right? This is where Habakkuk is. See, Habakkuk recognizes that as Babylon comes in, that yeah, the sin in Judah is bad. Oh, but the sin in Babylon is far worse. And so he says, Lord, we're talking about injustice here. I want you to deal with injustice. But how can you deal with injustice by executing injustice, by bringing about injustice? Is it not more unjust for you to take? He says, in comparison to Babylon, Judah is the righteous. In comparison to Babylon, like, yeah, we've got our issues and, yeah, we've got our problems. But we ain't like them, right? We ain't like them. So how could you use them to bring your discipline about in us? Is that not a worse injustice after all? And so God responds to him again, a second time. And a second time, he responds in a way that is completely different than the way I'm sure Habakkuk expects him to respond. He responds by saying that he's planned a different timeline. I love this. Habakkuk, and this, is, this feels so much, again, like my prayer life. God, I would like to know the plan. Would you please tell me the plan? Would you, would you lay it all out and show me how all of this works out in the end? Lord, would you show me, I, I know Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for, the, for, for their good and for your glory, for those who are called according. I, I know all of so can you just show me how all of this works out for good? Can you just show me how you can take one injustice and, and use it to overcome another injustice? Like, help me process that. And you know what God says? Let's talk about timing. I'm not going to tell you the plan. I'm not going to tell you the plan. What I'm going to tell you about my plan is that my plan is not your plan. And what I'm going to tell you about the plan is that my plan is not going to happen when you think it ought to happen. And what I'm going to tell you about my plan is that you're going to think it's never going to happen. Look at what he says here. And by the way, I have, I have the right verses up there this time. This is, this is so exciting when I have the right verses up there. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its, this is God responding to Habakkuk, appointed time. In other words, there is an appointed time, and it's not an appointed time for you to know. What's it for you to do? If it seems slow, oh my goodness, preach, Lord. It always seems slow, Lord. It always seems slow, Lord. If it seems slow, what does he say to do? Does he say, well, come and ask me and I'll tell you the answer? Does he say, just go and try to create the plan for yourself? 
Does he go and say, just try to work through whatever makes sense to you and what makes you feel happy about life? No, that's not what he says at all. He says, if it seems slow, oh, it does, Lord. What should I do? Wait for it. Wait for it. And he comes to Habakkuk, and he says, Habakkuk, you want all the answers. You want me to always live in response to you, but what does the Lord do? He flips it, and he says, this is not about my response to you. This is about your response to me. How will you respond when it doesn't happen in your way? And how will you respond when it doesn't happen in your time? And how will you respond when it doesn't happen in exactly the moment that you expect it to happen? How will you respond to me? Again, he's zooming out and he's showing Habakkuk the big picture, isn't he? He's showing, see, see, Habakkuk is like all of us. We're always trying to put together a a puzzle, but we're missing half the pieces. We we see what's in front of us and we can make an educated guess on uh, about what we should do and an educated decision on what we can do just based on what we have in front of us today and on what we've experienced yesterday. But there's a whole future out in front of us that none of us have the answers to. There's a whole future out in front of us and none of us have the details. How many of you would have made different decisions in your life if you would have known the future? Probably every stinking single one of us, right? And that in and of itself ought to bring about a humility in our relationship with God. That the point that God is making is you don't have the pieces, but I do have the pieces. You don't know what's coming tomorrow, but I do know what's coming tomorrow. You don't know what's happening with Babylon and Judah. You just see what's in front of you. You just see what's there today. Yes, yes, I am going to deal with Babylon, but I am not going to deal with Babylon in in your way. And I am not going to deal with Babylon even in your own lifetime. It's not going to be on your schedule. It's going to be on mine. See, how many of us, how many of us, we see the, the timing of God and we find ourselves wondering how in the world God could be good on that kind of schedule? How in the world could God be good if I'm still here in the waiting room? How could God be good if the evil and the injustice and the abuse and the struggle and the death and the sin that has come against me in my life has not yet been dealt with here and now? But see, the Lord, the Lord makes every decision. He's very different from us. We make our decisions based on yesterday and on today, but God, he makes his decisions based on all of eternity. He sees it in totality. He doesn't just know what happened yesterday. He doesn't just know what's happening today. He already knows what's going to happen tomorrow and what's going to happen 100 years from now and a millennium from now. He knows all of it, and God bases every decision not on what's most comfortable right now and not what's most convenient right now and what, not what's best right now. But what's best forever? What's going to be seen as being the wisest decision in the context against the backdrop of all eternity? And very often that which is wisest in the context of eternity is the hardest and most excruciating in the present. I think two guys from the 16th century, if you'll you'll amuse me here for a second, can help us. First guy, there was a guy named uh, John Bunyan, who was a preacher in England in the 1600s. And he, it, it became illegal to preach a, a Protestant gospel in the way that Bunyan preached it as a Baptist preacher. And so he was sentenced for 12 years to the Tower of London, separated from his beloved family, his wife, his kids, 
separated from his congregation because he refused to quit preaching the gospel in its full totality. And yet while Bunyan was in prison and while he was in the the dark night of his soul and while he would have written his story completely different than that and while he would have much rather have been with his church and with his family and with his kids, while he was in that prison, he wrote a little book called Pilgrim's Progress, which is outside of the King James Bible, the greatest seller in the English language in history. Think of the impact he's had on Christians. Think of the impact that he's had on eternity. Oh, his present circumstances were not good. And his present circumstances didn't have to be called good by him. But his present circumstances were used by God in the context of eternity for the advancement of the kingdom. So that now, John Bunyan, with the backdrop of his now reunited with, being united with Christ, would say, I am glad I was in prison. Think about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was an American preacher. He was one of the leaders of the first Great Awakening. He pastored his church through the Great Awakening for 25 years. And do you know what they did in response? They fired him. They ran him out of his house and took him to the edge of town and told him not to come back. So that he essentially lived in exile as a missionary to the Native Americans. And I can only imagine the tears that Edwards cried. I can only imagine the the feelings of anger and bitterness that he battled. And yet it was while he was in this exile with the Native Americans that he wrote his theological treatises that have made him what we consider to be likely the most consequential American theologian in history. What had the greater impact in eternity? was not having his feelings preserved by his church, but by having his life used for the glory of God. And I promise you, brothers and sisters, if you and I could talk to Edwards today with his experience in the, at the throne room of Christ, he would say, I wouldn't go back and change a single thing. Oh, but his timing would have looked different. Will you trust Christ when his timeline is different than yours. That's what it means to wait. Will you trust him? He's not just telling him, though, that he's planned a different timeline. He's telling him that he's writing a different storyline. He's writing a different storyline. In our day, narrative is everything, isn't it? We think if we can just control the narrative, if you talk to colleges, you talk to, uh, you talk to media outlets, you talk to politicians, Whomever it is, everybody wants control of the narrative because we believe that if we can just control the narrative, we can ultimately control the outcome. And so all of us are, in, are constantly micromanaging our lives and micromanaging our businesses and our churches and our institutions. And we're micromanaging them because we want to be able to control the narrative so that control, by controlling the narrative, we can control the outcome. But what's the problem with that? Evil always interrupts the narrative. It always interrupts the narrative. Sometimes it's evil just because we live in a world that is under the influence of evil. Because of the brokenness. Because there's death that's reigning here. Because there's children that are born and they're not born healthy. And then because there's, there's spouses, as we've seen too recently, that pass away way too young. Because there's illnesses that we face and disabilities that we know. And all the disorder that is in this world as a result of the evil that has come through sin. 
Sometimes it's not the evil that's out there somewhere. Sometimes it's the evil that's in me. That I was born a sinner. I was born with a heart bent toward what is evil. It's a lot for me to reckon with. And very often it's not somebody else that interrupts my, the narrative. It's me that interrupts the narrative. Or it's not just the evil out there somewhere. It's not just the evil that's in me. Or maybe it's the evil that's been done against you. You've been sinned against very personally. Very practically by someone like in Judah's day that was supposed to protect you. Someone that was supposed to be a safe place. But regardless of the instances in your life, not a single person here wouldn't have written your story differently than it is. Not a single one of us. Every one of us, if we were in charge of the narrative, if we were writing the story, would have written it differently. We would have written out some tears and we would have written in some laughter. We would have written out some poverty and written in some prosperity. We would have written out some failure and written in some success. But God is reminding Habakkuk and he's reminding every one of us that we're not in charge of the story. We're not in charge of the story. See, that's the issue for Habakkuk. He actually reveals the narrative that was being used in Judah at the time to justify all of the sins that were in their lives. To justify all of the sin that was in their civic government, in their temple, among their common people. What does he say? He goes to them and he says, he says, Lord, how could you possibly think we are sinful compared to Babylon, right? Do you hear the narrative? Do you hear what they've been telling themselves to justify their sin? Well, we're not as bad as all them. We don't cuss as much as they do, right? We, we, we don't, like, we're not as, as, as vengeful as they are. We're, we're not as idolatrous as they are. By, like, in comparison, Lord, we're actually doing pretty good. That's the narrative. My goodness, it's the narrative that's still in the church, isn't it? It's the narrative that each of us tell ourselves so often, isn't it? Well, I don't sin like that guy. I, I don't live like her. I'm all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got sin that needs to be dealt with. That's what, that's what Habakkuk starts out saying. We've got sin that needs to be dealt with, but it's not as serious as their sin. You see? So what does God do? God draws a comparison. God draws a comparison in verses 4 and in verses 5. And it's meant to bring into his mind Babylon and Judah. It's meant to be a comparison between who, God's, who are the enemies of God and what God's people are to look like. But he speaks in generality so that you can really measure your own life by it. Verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That, that's the Babylonians, right? Their God is their strength, he says. Puffed up. But who are the people of God? Well, there's a distinction. There's a contrast. But the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never had enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own people. That's who Babylon is. But guess who Judah sounds like? Does Judah sound like the people who are waiting by faith? Does Judah sound like the people who are living by faith? And living by faith here actually can also imply living faithfully. So faithfulness is in view as much as faith. 
Are they people that are faithfully upholding the law of God? Are they faithfully adhering to the commitments that they've made to the Lord? Are they faithfully honoring and observing the covenant that they've signed with him? No. No, Judah doesn't sound like the people of God. Judah sounds more like Babylon. That Babylon is not the standard for comparison. God is. And God's people look a lot more like Babylon than they do like the Lord. Oh, brothers and sisters, the question that he's confronting Habakkuk, he's saying, the question is not, how would you write the story? All of us would write it differently. The question is, is which character will you be within the story? Will you be Babylon or will you be the righteous? Will you walk by your appetites and chase after all of your desires? Or will you walk by faith and live in faithfulness? That verse there in verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith, is actually quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Galatians chapter 3. Romans chapter 1, and uh, Hebrews chapter 10. And he, in Galatians chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 1, in both cases, you remember this is actually the famous verse that Martin Luther sees in chapter Romans 1, 17, that actually spurs on the Protestant Reformation. But in Romans 1 and in Galatians chapter 3, both of them have to do with how you relate to God. And in Hebrews chapter 10, it takes on a different tone. Hebrews chapter 10 helps us to see some of the nuance. That it's not just about how you relate to God. It's how you persevere by faith in the face of great trials. In the face of great uncertainty. And so the the question that's in front of them, the question that they're saying is, when you would have written your story differently, when you would have written all of the suffering and all of the failure and all of the hardship and all of the disappointment and all of the poverty out of your story, and then you still find yourself there, You still find yourself crying yourself to sleep? You still find yourself lonely at the end of the day? You still find yourself in a job that you wish was different than it is? The question is not, do you know God? The question is, is will you walk like it? Will you you persevere by faith? Trusting that you haven't seen the end of the story yet. The final question that we see here has to do with us. What am I supposed to do? That's what Habakkuk is asking here at the end. What am I supposed to do when I don't know what to do? Isn't that the question that we find ourselves asking so often in our lives? More times than not, we don't know what to do. And we don't know how to react or how to respond or how to cope with the situation as it is. And so we find ourselves, Lord, what do you want me to do with the life that I have now? What do you want me to do with the job that I have? What do you want me to do with the rebellion of my kids? Like, what am I supposed to do? All of Habakkuk chapter 3 is a song of response written by Habakkuk to the Lord. It's a song of response in which Habakkuk talks about what he's going to do since he doesn't know what to do. In light of what God has said and in in light of the lack of details that he still has and in light of the difficult timing and the hard days that lie ahead, Habakkuk says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a song of praise in response to the Lord. And by seeing Habakkuk's response, I think we can see how we can respond when we don't know what to do. At first, you have to look backward. 
have to look backward. If you read all, if we had time to read all of chapter three, verses one through sixteen, you would it would read like a history of the Exodus and a history of God's people coming in with Joshua. We've we've seen this is often the case with the prophets. It's actually often the case with the Gospels. I think we'll see that too. That you have these these clear uh, piles of rocks, if you will, if you if you get that Joshua reference, these piles of rocks where they have incidences of of God's faithfulness in the past. And they're always going back to them. But what's unique about the way that Habakkuk writes it is he talks about Egypt in the past, but he also talks about the Exodus in the past and the future. He's talking about the past and the future simultaneously at the same time. And so he's talking about being delivered from Pharaoh and being delivered from the wilderness and being brought into the promised land as something that has happened. And he's talking about it also as something that will happen. That is, that just like there was an Exodus... There will be an exodus. Just like God came against Pharaoh and smote smote Pharaoh in a way that was unseen and unprecedented and unexpected. God will smite the Babylonians too. And God will smite all of the evil that is in this world and all the suffering that we know. Just like God did crash down the walls of Jericho. One more time, the walls of Jericho will fall. There was a past Jericho and there is a future Jericho. And we can know the future because we already know the past. And God has not changed. So we can look backward. And by looking backward, we can see and have an idea of what is lying ahead for us. Oh, we don't know the specifics. But brothers and sisters, we know the victory. We don't know the details, but we know the victory. We don't know how the suffering that we've experienced can turn about anything good. But what we know is the victory. I love the way he says that. I put it there, verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3. He says, listen to this. He's talking about, this is God talking about what he's going to do, or Habakkuk talking about what God is going to do with the Babylonians. He says, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as to devour the poor in secret. He says, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take the arrows out of the quiver of the Babylonians, and you're going to use Babylonian arrows to slay the Babylonians. He keeps going. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of the strength of Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks he's going to drive the people of God to the edge of the Red Sea. Then they're going to be hemmed in and his forces are going to come down on this little slave nation. What does God do? God uses the Red Sea, which was an ally for Pharaoh. He splits it. His people go across. And what does the Red Sea become? The Red Sea becomes not an ally, but a judgment against Pharaoh. And the waves crash. Habakkuk is reminding us, brothers and sisters, that God loves poetic justice. And God loves poetic justice because it is through poetic justice that we can most clearly see his hand. How in the world will he save the world? He will save the world because the world will try to kill his son. And the world will try to execute his son. And they will put together a cross and nail him there. And it will look as though he has been assassinated. But in truth, rather than being assassinated, he will be exalted This is the poetic justice of God that allows you to see the sovereign hand of God. And brothers and sisters, you will experience this poetic justice personally. Personally. That you can't interpret your suffering running forward. And you can't interpret your suffering in the moment. Oh, but looking back, just like Bunyan and just like Edwards and just like Habakkuk, 
you'll know that the kindness of God, the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God has been with you every step. So look backward. That's what you do when you don't know what to do. Don't just look backward. Look upward. Look upward. Yeah, look back and celebrate what God has done and, and trust that it's what God will do. Look, look backward and know the goodness of God. But in the moment, in the moment, sometimes you don't even have the energy to rehearse all of the suffering and all the things and all the history of the greatness of God. And what do you do? You drop to your knees and you just look upward. See if you can relate to the prayer that he uses to close his book. He uses it there in, at the end, of, beginning in verse 17. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fell, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my, my feet Feel like the deers, he makes me tread on my high places. Do you hear what he's saying? Though I have lost my job, though my health is failing me, though my life is filled with pain and suffering, though my past is filled with trauma and abuse, though my, my future is uncertain and unwavering, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He gives us insight gives us insight into what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. I think it's some of the most difficult words in the scriptures. I think it's some of the most life-giving words in the scriptures. I, I kicked our service off with it. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to have poverty. I know, I know how to be sick. I know how to lose my job. I know how to suffer. I know how to abound. I, I know how to prosper. I know, I know what it means to have a, a good life and to enjoy life and have plenty of things and have all of my family healthy. I know what that's like. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. Man, Paul, tell me the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is the secret? He says, I can do all things through who? Through him who strengthens me. Sounds a lot like Habakkuk, who says, though the crops fell, though the money runs out, though the days are long, though the suffering is intense, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You rejoice in who you have, not what you have. You rejoice in who you have, not what you have. What you have is vanity. It is like the wind, chasing after the wind. It is here today and it is gone tomorrow. It might not be here today and it might be tomorrow. It is uncertain. And if your life, if your happiness, if your joy, if it is dependent on what you have, it is as vain, it is as fleeting, it is as temporary as, the, as those possessions are. Oh, but the Lord... The Lord, he operates on a different timeline and the, door, the Lord is writing a different storyline. Oh, but the Lord, the Lord endures forever. The Lord is strength for the weak. The Lord is prosperity for the impoverished. The Lord is glory for the humiliated. The Lord is kindness for the suffering. The Lord, yet the Lord, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Oh, this morning. Maybe you have a lot of serious questions. And you think, what in the world am I supposed to do? There's two things. Look backward and look upward. Rejoice in who you have, not what you have. Let's pray to the Lord together.
Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.